Romans chapter 4, verses 1 to 16. What then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, discovered in this matter? If in fact Abraham was justified by works, he had something to boast about, but not before God. What does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now, when a man works, his wages are not credited to him as a gift, but as an obligation. However, to the man who does not work, but trusts God who justifies the wicked, his faith is credited as righteousness. David says the same thing when he speaks of the blessedness of the man to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. Blessed are they whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will never count against him. Is this blessedness only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? We have been saying that Abraham's faith was credited to him as righteousness. Under what circumstances was it credited? Was it after he was circumcised or before? It was not after, but before. And he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. So then, he is the father of all who believe but have not been circumcised, in order that righteousness might be credited to them And he is also the father of the circumcised, who not only are circumcised, but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. It was not through the law that Abraham and his offspring received the promise that he would be heir of the world, but through the righteousness that comes by faith. For if those who live by by law are heirs, faith has no value and the promise is worthless, because law brings wrath. And where there is no law, there is no transgression." Therefore, the promise comes by faith, so that it may be by grace and be guaranteed to all Abraham's offspring, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham. He is the father of us all. Well, let's begin with prayer, shall we? Let's pray. God in heaven, we thank you for your word to us, the Bible. We pray, Lord, that tonight, whether we are very new to these things, perhaps confused and unsure, or whether we're very familiar with these things and we've been believers for decades, we ask that tonight, to each one of us, your own Holy Spirit would speak through your word to our hearts. Please help each of us to understand what you say. Help us to believe and trust what you tell us. Help us to change the way we live in accordance with the truth that we hear. We ask that we might glorify you. Amen. Well, it is a thrilling day to be commissioning Zoe uh, to be explaining the message of Jesus Christ to people of all backgrounds and nations here in London. But you could be forgiven for asking the question, well, why bother? I mean, why do we want to explain the Christian message to people of different backgrounds and religions who gather here in London? Haven't they got their own religions? I guess many of us would have asked that question. Certainly our colleagues and friends would be saying, why are you trying to persuade everybody else to become Christians? They've got their own religions. I mean, the Buddhists in London have got their own eightfold noble path of enlightenment to follow. They've got plenty of principles to live by. They've got plenty of religious works to perform. 
the Muslims have got the five pillars of Islam in submission to Allah in accordance with the teachings of the Prophet in the Quran. They've got uh, alms to give and prayers to pray five times a day, a pilgrimage to Mecca to make. They've got plenty of religious things to be getting on with. The Jews, well, the Jews have got the Ten Commandments. Very admirable rules. They can get on with trying to live by them. Roman Catholics have got seven sacraments to live by. There's baptism and there's uh, confirmation and there's the mass and there's marriage and there's holy orders and there's uh, confession. And then, of course, finally, there's holy unction. They've got lots of religious principles to be getting on with. Why are we all so hot under the collar about explaining Christ to people from other nations? Why are we longing that people will go back to their own countries with the message that they've heard here in London? Now, those are the questions that we ask. They're also the questions that the Christians living in Rome in the first century would have asked. You see, Rome was the capital of a pluralistic empire, the Roman Empire. And the Apostle Paul was writing to the Christians in Rome, who he'd never met before, late 50s AD, on his way to visit them, looking for their support and encouragement to take the Christian message into Western Europe to Spain and beyond. And the question must have been arising in their hearts as he writes about his plans, why can't you just stay where you are, Paul? Why are you trying to take the gospel to all the nations of the world? So in the book of Romans, the Apostle Paul is explaining the gospel of God. He's explaining the message of God and why the whole world needs to hear it. Why all cultures, all nations and all people why people of every background here in London need to hear the gospel of God. See, he explains in chapter 1 that the gospel of God is all about the Son of God, Jesus Christ our Lord. Okay, we might have guessed that. It's about Jesus. He says it's the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes it. That's pretty amazing. Whatever background you come from, you can be saved through this gospel of God about the Son of God, because it's the power of God for salvation. Why? Because it reveals the righteousness of God. That is to say the the goodness that we don't have in ourselves, so that we are acceptable to live with God forevermore. But isn't that goodness available in other religions as well? No. No explains the Apostle. From chapter 1, verses 18 onwards to chapter 3, verse 20, he explains that actually the whole world, whatever background we come from, whatever nation, whatever religion we were raised in, none of us has the righteousness that we need to live with God. We're not essentially good people because all of us rebel against God. In our different ways, says the Apostle, we all reject God and rebel against him. And we redesign God the way we find him more convenient. And the different uh, nations and cultures of the world have redesigned God in all kinds of different ways. There are many world religions. We might call them spiritual ideologies. But Paul says really they're idolatry because we're reshaping the living God in the way we prefer. And of course the generations pass those versions of God down through the generations in a cultural form. But in every part of the world, 
We've redesigned God to make him more convenient and in particular to excuse the way of life we want to live by. So you'll know friends, you'll have colleagues who say, well, I don't really want to hear about your God because I like to think of God as this. Or I like to think of God as that. I don't like to think of God the way you describe him. I want to think of God this way. That's called idolatry. It's redesigning God the way we want him to be so that we can live the way we want to live in rejection of him. And the apostle goes on to explain that whether we're pagan and, or atheist or whether we're a moral or religious or Jewish, whatever background we come from, whatever kind of person we are, in our own way, in different ways, we reject God, redesign him to excuse ourselves. And in this way, we offend him and we permit ourselves to be immoral. And so the apostle concludes, that means that everybody everywhere is unrighteous. We don't have the righteousness that God wants to see in our lives. We don't treat him and we don't treat others the way we should. So we're in serious trouble with God. We are unrighteous. We actually deserve his condemnation, his anger, his punishment for the way we live. At the end of chapter 3, chapter 3 verse 20 concludes, therefore no one is righteous. But, says God last week, in the best sentence ever written in all of history, most important, the greatest sentence ever, chapter 3, verses 21 to 26, but now God has provided for us the righteousness we don't have in Jesus Christ. You'll see it there in chapter 3, verse 22. you want to turn to that verse with me, let me just read it to you. This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. That is to say, God has provided for the people of the whole world the righteousness that we really need in Christ. That is to say, the goodness that would make us acceptable to him is provided in Christ. We don't have it ourselves wherever we come from, but it's been made available in Christ, so the whole world needs it. Jew and Gentile, wherever, whatever background we come from, we all need the righteousness of God in Christ. But of course, this is quite surprising, you see. If even Jews need this righteousness, Jew and Gentile alike, Jews and non-Jews, everybody needs the righteousness of God in Christ. That seems strange to the Jewish Christians in Rome. And the Apostle Paul says, this isn't contrary to the Old Testament. Actually, this is what the Old Testament always, te- always taught. So he concludes at the end of chapter 3 in verse 31, do we then nullify the law of the Old Testament by this faith? Not at all. We're actually upholding the teaching of the Old Testament. He says, what I'm telling you about where the righteousness of God is to be found is the same as the Old Testament teaches. Now, that's a big statement. That is a really big thing. And he's beginning to need to justify that, to explain that to the Jewish Christians in Rome. And that's why our reading today is all about Abraham. You see, Abraham was the massive hero for for the Jewish people. He was the kind of the original hero. He was the great ancestor. Uh, He was the one who who God made great promises to. He was promised the kingdom of God, a place in the kingdom of God. Uh, God chose him for blessing. 
God said that he was righteous and acceptable in his sight. So we'd better look at Abraham then, because he, he seems to be the model believer. Let's go and look back at Abraham and find out how it was that he was righteous in God's sight. How was he acceptable to God? And that's what verses 1 to 3 tell us. Let's read them again. What then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, that's our ancestor, discovered in this matter, that is, of being righteous before God? If, in fact, Abraham was justified by works, he had something to boast about, but not before God. What does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Paul is saying here, look, Abraham himself was justified, declared righteous and acceptable to God simply by faith, by trusting God for his righteousness. He quotes here from Genesis 15, you see, of a famous occasion, you see, Abraham had been promised the gospel promise, a place in the kingdom of God. It was only in rough outline back in Genesis Genesis chapter 12, but that's what it was. It was the gospel promise. But in order to have a place in that kingdom, he would have to have many descendants. And by Genesis 15, he's now a very old man. Long past having any children by which there might be a great kingdom he could be a part of. But God made the promise to him again. And Abraham believed God. Abraham trusted that what God promised was true. Abraham trusted God's promise, and so God credited or or reckoned or counted him righteous, not because of his own righteousness, but because of the righteousness of Christ yet to come. In other words, Abraham wasn't working terribly hard in order to be righteous before God. It wasn't that he was trying to save himself. It wasn't that he was trying to be righteous enough for heaven. He knew he couldn't be. He trusted God for the righteousness that he would need. Now, that is a great shock. That is a massive shock to the Jewish people to hear that. I mean, Abraham was their hero. He was the hero of righteousness. Everybody knew that that Abraham was righteous. To discover that he was righteous by trusting in God rather than in himself is a big shock. I don't know whether you've had that experience before where you've discovered something about your dad your father, and you know, you thought he was superhero, and then one day you discovered that he wasn't. Do you remember that day when that happened? Uh, I've got a wonderful dad. He's, a, he's a, a complete hero. Lovely Christian man. He's the most patient, godly man in the world. Uh, and the way we kids, there are five of us kids, um, the way we remember him as a father, we kind of think of him, remember him as just absolutely the ideal father, you know, totally patient, loving, firm, but always, you know, patient. And cl- anyway, a couple of years ago, we were talking to him, and we said, you never lost your, your temper with us once. He said, I did. I said, no, you didn't. When did you do that? He said, don't you remember that day I totally lost it with Rachel? Now, Rachel now is a missionary in Tanzania, and, and she's all marvelous and all the rest of it, but I can tell you, when she was growing up, my sister would drive anybody up the wall. I, I just be, defy anybody not to be irritated by my sister on occasions. She could drive you absolutely crazy. And, and my dad said, don't you remember that day when I lost it with Rachel? I said, no. He said, remember, I picked up all the cutlery on the draining board. I said, what? All the cutlery, the knives, the forks, the spoons, and I threw the lot at her. I said, what? 
He said, I threw all the cutlery at her. I said, but you could have killed her. He said, I know. He said, it wasn't my finest moment. And I thought, no, that's dreadful. And my idea about my dad, my, you know, my image of dad is when he was absolutely not. I mean, has anybody here ever thrown their cutlery at their children? Mark, have you ever thrown the cutlery? Of course not. My dad did. And so right down here, and that's what the, the Apostle Paul has just done. He's just explained that the great man Abraham wasn't so perfect after all. He wasn't righteous in himself. He was righteous because he trusted in God for his righteousness by faith. Now, in explaining that a little bit further, the apostle then gives three simple negatives to explain what he means. In other words, he wasn't justified by works, so not by works, not by circumcision, and not by law. Firstly, not by works. Verses 4 to 8. Let's read that again. Now, when a man works, his wages are not credited to him as a gift, but as an obligation. However, to the man who doesn't work, but trusts God, who justifies the wicked, his faith is credited as righteousness. David says the same thing when he speaks of the blessedness of the man to whom God credits righteousness, apart from works. Quote, Blessed are they whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will never count against him. So Paul is saying, look, Abraham was justified by faith. That is not by works, not by his good deeds, not by religious performance. See, verse 4, he says, look, a man who performs work can expect wages as an obligation. It may be a little or a lot. You know, whether you work as a nurse or as a banker, whether you work as a teacher or as an MP, as a fireman or as a GP, if you work, you expect to be paid. It's an obligation. Uh, I mean, who would bother going to work if you weren't going to get paid for it? I wouldn't. Anybody here go to work just, just because they want to? You go because you need to get paid. You need to pay the bills to live, to survive. When you work... You expect to be paid as an obligation. But that's not how God wants to give us salvation. You see, we don't deserve salvation. So we can't earn it like a wage. We have to be given it as a gift. And therefore, you see, this is something that we can't boast about. It's not something we can get terribly proud about. Because we didn't deserve it. We don't earn it. We're given it. Oh, it's like Christmas. I mean, the reason why Christmas can be exciting, I know there are lots of other reasons why sometimes it's a bit dull, but the best thing about Christmas Day is you get up, you're going to get presents. I mean, you don't say, hey, look at me, I'm going to get presents today because I really deserved them. I mean, you don't, that's not how you treat Christmas. Christmas is wonderful because people who love you give you gifts. And it's wonderful to be given a gift. And that's how it is with righteousness. It's not something you work for as an obligation because you can't earn it. You don't deserve it. It's a gift from God who loves you. In fact, verse 5, who is the righteous man? Well, it's the man who isn't working for his own salvation, but is trusting God instead, trusting in God who justifies the wicked. Abraham knew he was wicked. But he trusted God, who declares the unrighteous to be righteous with the righteousness 
of God in Christ. Verse 6, in fact, the greatest Old Testament king, David himself, says much the same thing in Psalm 32, of those who are reckoned to be righteous. David writes, look, blessed, just as Abraham was blessed, blessed are they whose transgressions, that is their law-breaking, is forgiven or pardoned, whose sins, that is failures, are covered over, that's blotted out, whose sin, that is rebellion, is not counted, in other words, it's ignored. Happy is that person, you see, who's had all their faults, their transgressions, sins and sin, forgiven, blotted out, covered over. It's very striking here, isn't it, that the righteousness that God gives in Christ is not only the positive life of good righteous deeds culminating in his death on the cross, is also, if you like, the negative righteousness of having suffered the penalty for everything that we do wrong. It's both the righteousness of the positive acts of good living, but also having suffered what is right and proper for our sin. So God's righteousness is given to us in Christ. And what it means is our debt is pardoned. It's as if we're um, like a death row, on death row, facing eternal death, which is what we are before Christ comes along. We're locked up. There is no hope. But if you like, the eternal electric chair. And then Christ has set us free. He's pardoned us. The bill has been covered. Uh, have you ever, um, uh, you know, you've been at a restaurant and there's been an expensive meal and somebody says, let me get this, I'll cover this. I mean, not if you've been there with Matt Beebe, but somebody else, you, you might hear somebody else. So I'll get that, I'll cover that bill. Don't worry that. And that's what Jesus Christ has said. Let me, let me cover this. What joy. It's as if our offences have been ignored. The charges are all dropped. We've done something dreadful over many years. And God has said, I'm prepared to drop the charges because Christ has suffered the penalty for you. What joy it is. What a relief. What freedom there is to trust in Christ for our righteousness, for he suffered for all that we do wrong. I'm just trying to kind of uh, paint the picture of what it is to be a Christian. It's such a wonderful thing. It's a bit like being caught in the debt trap in London. You know what it is in London. You, you know, you, you come and you, you, you get a job and, and perhaps you, you marry somebody and so you buy a house which is much too big for you and the mortgage is much too much. And so you both, you know, work all hours that God sends and you're absolutely knackered because you're trying to pay the bills. And then, of course, you get kids you, and the, the local school's dreadful, so you send them somewhere else and so you're paying school fees and the bills are going up. And then, of course, what happens is interest rates ch- uh, rise and now you're really stuffed and, and you've surrendered all your life policies, you've got no savings and the bills just go up and up and up. And then your, your overdraft gets more and the mortgage is too much and you're overcommitted and the debt gets bigger and bigger. So you borrow money, but you can't finance it. Anybody recognize this? I can see several people who are smiling, you see, with knowledge. That's down the end of the road. But as that goes on, of course, in the end, there's bankruptcy. You know, and your house will have to be seized and sold. Your kids will have to have their lives ruined because they'll be taken out of school. You'll have to move. You lose your job. And this frightening debt is building up and up and up. And it's not just tens or twenties of hundreds, it's not hundred, it's two hundred, it's three hundred thousand. You can never pay this debt. You're absolutely trapped. And your whole life is going to be ruined. And then the phone call comes, and it's your dad on the other end of the phone. And he says, I, I hear you've made a bit of a muck of your finances. Uh, yeah, I have actually. 350,000 pounds, is that right? 
And he said, yeah, I'm afraid it is. He said, let me pay it for you. Let me pay it for you. What do you say at that moment? It's all right, Dad. I'll, I'll try and do it myself, if you don't mind. If you're very, very proud, if you've got any sense in your head, you'll just say, thank you. Thank you so much. That is what God has done in Christ. He's given us the righteousness we do not have. He said to each one of us tonight, let me cover the bill. Let me deal with the debt. Is that all right? Just say thank you and accept it. It's not by our works. It's by his. It's not at our cost. It's at his. So firstly, he says, not by works, not by our works or good deeds. Then he says, not by circumcision, verses 9 to 12. Let's read these verses. Verse 9, is this blessedness only for the circumcised, that's the Jews, or also for the uncircumcised, that's the rest of us? We've been saying that Abraham's faith was credited to him as righteousness. Under what circumstances was it credited? Was it after he was circumcised or before? It was not after, but before. And he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith, while he was still uncircumcised. So then, he is the father of all who believe, but have not been circumcised, in order that the righteousness might be credited to them. And he's also the father of the circumcised, who not only are circumcised, but also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. Now, Paul is saying here that this righteousness is not by circumcision. It's not by racial identity. It's not by any religious ceremony, but simply by faith in Christ. You see, what he's saying here is that God credits the righteousness to anybody who trusts in Christ. The key word here is credits. It comes over and over and over again. It's not earned as a wage. It's credited as a gift. Do you see the difference? It's not what we do that we deserve. It's what God gives because he loves us. It's credited, reckoned to us, even though it's not in us ourselves but in Christ. Now that means it's available to Jew and Gentile alike. Verse 10, what do we learn from Abraham? Well, he was credited with God's righteousness long before he was ever circumcised. So clearly being righteous in God's sight doesn't depend at all on being Jewish. It's got absolutely nothing to do with being circumcised as a member of the Jewish people. Verse 11, circumcision was just a sign or a seal of what was already the case, that he was righteous by faith in Christ. The shock here, well, there are two shocks here. The first shock is that this means that people of all nations, uncircumcised or circumcised, Gentile or Jew, whatever country, whatever background, wherever religion we were brought up in, the righteousness of God is available to us in Christ. Because whatever religion you try and keep, you'll never be good enough for God, will you? I mean, tell me, in the religion that you were brought up with, you know you'll never be good enough for a holy and good God. The righteousness of God that we need is available in Christ. But isn't that wonderful? To everyone is available through trusting in him. 
That's the first shock. It's not just for the Jews, but also for the Gentiles. The second shock is that therefore Jews actually aren't righteous just because they're circumcised. Jews are only righteous if they too are trusting in Christ for the righteousness they need. Incidentally, um, this clarifies for us, if if, uh, some of you here perhaps have have heard before, dispensational teaching is quite common in America, uh, and other teachings like it, which tell you that there are two ways to be saved. One is through trusting in Christ and depending on his righteousness, and the other is to be born Jewish. Well, there aren't two ways to be saved. There's only one way to be saved, through faith in God. It also means, of course, doesn't it, that no religious ceremony will save us, whether it's baptism or confirmation or anything else. The only thing that can save us is the righteousness of God in Christ, which we receive by faith in him. So it's a bit like discovering that when your dad rings up and you're you're overcome with great gratitude, and he says, let me deal with the the bill. I'll cover it. And they say, that's so wonderful. And then he says, actually, I'm doing this for others as well. You say, what do you mean? I'm actually covering the debts of anybody who will accept it from me. You know, I've made a lot of money, and I want to give it to people who need it. And so anybody who applies to me, whatever background, not just you, but anybody who applies to me, can have their debts cancelled, and I will cover the bill for them. Now, you can either feel prickly about that and say, well, I thought I was the only one. Or you can rejoice it and say, what a wonderful thing that you should pay the debts, not only for me, but for others who need your help as well. So the apostle says, it's not by works that we do, but by faith. It's not by circumcision, that is by racial background. It doesn't matter where we were brought up or where we were born, we all need the righteousness of God in Christ. And thirdly, it's not by law, verses 13 to 15. Verse 13, it was not through law that Abraham and his offspring received the promise that he would be heir of the world, but through the righteousness that comes by faith. For if those who live by law are heirs, faith has no value and the promise is worthless because law brings wrath. And where there's no law, there's no transgression. So thirdly, it's not by law. That is to say, it's not by religious knowledge. It's not by knowing the law of the Old Testament. See, Abraham was promised the the world to come, a place in the kingdom of God, not because he kept the law, because he didn't even know the law. The law wasn't given to 400 years later. So you see, he wasn't considered righteous because he kept the law of the Old Testament. He didn't even know what it was. He was reckoned righteous by faith in God. Just as today, you and I can be part of the world to come. We can go to heaven too. By, by the righteousness we receive from God in Christ. That is by faith in him and not by keeping the law. You see, verse 14, if it was the other way around, if an inheritance in the world to come was ours by keeping law, well, we're all lost. See, faith is useless, the promise is pointless, and we're all facing wrath because we just cannot keep the law of the Bible. God's standards are too high for us. We're too useless. We'll never keep it. Thankfully, it's not by law. The law just makes us aware of how much we need. And so knowing and obeying the law is not the way to be righteous. So do not think for a moment, you see, that just because you know the Bible inside out, that that makes you righteous. 
See, just because you were brought up in a family where you were taught well at Sunday school. You know, perhaps you come from another country, in America or South Africa, where you were brought up in the Christian faith. That doesn't make you a Christian. Just because you can tell the, tell the Bible stories over and over, just because you, you know large parts of Romans, doesn't matter if you can quote the whole Bible, back to front, in the original language. Makes no difference whatever. That's like saying, um, sorry, Dad, no, I, don't, I won't want you to pay my debt for me because I've just bought a great book on the banking system. And I've already read a lot of the chapters, and I now know more about banking than anybody else I know. Dad's going to say, but how's that going to help you with your debts? Don't worry about it, Dad. I've still got half the rest of the book to read, and by the time I've read the whole book, I'll know all about debts and banking. That's not going to make any difference at all, is it? You see, it's no use knowing the law of the Bible. We're not righteous. We can't keep it. And so we need the righteousness of God in Christ. So you see, Abraham was saved not by works, his own good deeds, not by circumcision, his racial background, not by law, because he didn't know it, but by faith, trusting in God for the righteousness he needs. And therefore, in conclusion, verse 16, therefore, the promise comes by faith, so that it may be by grace and may be guaranteed to all Abraham's offspring, not only to those who are of the law, Jews, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham, anyone. He is the father of us all. You see, the gospel is a promise of righteousness. The great message of the gospel of God is that anybody can have the righteousness we need from God. In Christ. So that it might be by faith, that is, we simply rely on God for it and not for ourselves. So that it'll be by grace, that is, a gift from God. It's not something that we earn and boast about. It's a wonderful present, a gift of God's kindness because He loves us and He's made it available to everybody anywhere. And all we have to do is to trust God for it. And therefore it's guaranteed, because it doesn't depend upon us. We'd blow it if it was up to us. It depends upon God keeping his promise, and he always keeps his promises. And so it's guaranteed to Jew and Gentile alike who put their faith in Christ, in God, for the righteousness we need, as Abraham did. And if we do, then Abraham is our great ancestor, whether Jewish or Gentile. Abraham is the great ancestor and the great dignity of having him as an ancestor and the great history that flows from him and the people that are descended from him. We're in that people and we have his history and we share in his identity if we have the faith of Abraham. So it's a bit like um, being given a ticket. Uh, one of my colleagues has offered me a ticket at the, um, uh, the great game between the South Africans and the barbarians at Twickenham in a couple of uh, weeks' time. Uh, it, would great. it would be great, wouldn't it, to see the South Africans beaten? And I'd love to be there at that match. But as he offers me the ticket, he says, look, I've got your ticket, would you like it? Well, I could say to him, couldn't I? Look, don't worry about it. I'll, I'll work my own way there. I'll, I'll, I'll get in myself. What I'll do is I'll go down to the gym and I'll train furiously hard for the next three weeks. And maybe I'll, I'll be able to get myself into the barbarian team, and that's how I'll get in. He's going to say, Richard, who are you kidding? You know, I know you're pretty fit and, and so on, but you haven't got a chance of getting into the barbarian team. 
Who are you kidding? I say, oh, even if I don't do it by my works, you see, I'm English. You know, and Twickenham's in England. And so by my, my background, and you know, I come from a prestigious family, and I know a few people. I'll get into the game like that. And Phil will say, no, you know, to get through the turnstiles, you've got to have a ticket. You can't get in just because you're English. Well, I say, well, okay, maybe not by racial, but I do know the, rug, the RFU code. I've bought the book. I'm reading the rules. I understand the rugby game better than anybody else in the whole world. Richard, you don't get into Twickenham just because you know the rules of rugby. What good is that to you? You have to have a ticket. Do you want it or not? And as if, it's as if God is saying to every single one of us tonight, whatever country we come from, whatever religion we were raised in, whatever background, whatever family, whatever life we've lived, you cannot get in without the righteousness of God. You're not righteous and nor am I. You see, we're not good enough for God. But he'll give us the goodness we need in Christ. If you'll simply accept it from God in Christ, trust in Christ to get you into heaven rather than in yourself. Do you want it? Don't you want it? How could you say no to such a wonderful offer? Or are you going to try to work furiously and try and get yourself into heaven? Or are you going to just hope that somehow your family background will get you through the back door? Or that maybe by knowing all about the Bible, that'll impress somebody. It won't. You need the righteousness of God in Christ, and it's offered to you wherever you come from. Do you want it? Let's bow our heads and pray together. Oh, God in heaven, how we thank you for making available what we most need. Whatever country we grew up in, whatever religion we learned, whatever our faith or whatever atheism we were brought up in, how we thank you that you know that we are unrighteous. We don't deserve to live with you. How we thank you that you've provided the righteousness we need in Christ. And thank you for the ancient example of Abraham, that great first believer, that great ancestor of faith. Thank you for explaining to us that he too wasn't righteous by his own deeds, his works. And he wasn't righteous by his circumcision and racial background. And he wasn't righteous by the law and knowing the Bible, but simply by trusting you. And so, Father, we ask that whether perhaps for the first time tonight or maybe for the hundredth time, you would help us to put our faith in you rather than in ourselves, to trust in you for the righteousness we need, for the goodness that we don't have ourselves. Help us to rely on Christ and not ourselves. And help us to live like this every day, to walk in the steps of Abraham, every day trusting in Christ for our salvation. Oh, set us free from the burden of trying to keep, uh, to be good enough to do works of the law. Set us free from wishing we belong to a different race. Would you set us free from thinking we have to know all the right things and instead give us the joy of trusting in Christ alone for our salvation. And we ask that you give us this joy because you give us this faith and we ask it for the glory of your name. 
Amen.